If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them with me this morning to Genesis 12. You see, this is a part one, the next faithful step. Last time we were together, we traced the promised seed of the woman, effectively from Shem all the way to a man named Abram. And we saw how Abram's father, Terah, migrated from Ur of the Chaldees near to Babylon to Haran, well, north in Syria. And there, Terah and his family established themselves and they settled. We then applied that, the, the, the thoughts there. We remarked that what we are tracing is a family line, but also a faithful line. And we will continue thinking about faith both this week and then we'll really, it's, we're coming to a climax next week as we, as we finalize our thoughts on faith next week with a sermon that will effectively be entirely focused upon the nature of faith as we see it exemplified here in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Those final verses of Genesis 11 gave a great example of what to, to look for as we're, as we're tracing this seed of the woman found in Genesis 13 who would crush the head of the serpent. It's also a, another great example of, of how to read a genealogy. Remember, um, throughout, well, throughout Genesis 1 through 11, I've talked about genealogies. We've read through the genealogies, and I've mentioned some strategies as it relates to reading through them. I told you from the beginning that when you read a list that contains a sort of formula, the way genealogies do, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he lived so many years, and he had sons and daughters, and then he died. Any deviation from that formula matters, right? There's a significance to the deviations to that formula. So that as a general rule, unless you are looking for something specific, the genealogies uh, may not be the most profitable thing, right? If you're reading through the Bible in a year, you get to a genealogy, and you kind of just uh, skim through it. And, 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 and as I've encouraged you, I've said, you know, as a general rule, that's probably okay, you're not necessarily going to pick up great things from the genealogies. However, that being said, when you see deviations from the formula, deviations from just the listing, that deviation is there for a reason and that ought to perk your interest and cause you to ask why. So in Genesis chapter 5, we read so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so and they lived so many years until we got to verse 22. And in verse 22, instead of so-and-so lived this many years, it says Enoch walked with God so many years. And you say, wow, okay, we had a deviation to the formula. Instead of him just living for these number of years, he walked with God. Why? And then that gives us insight to then say, who is this person, Enoch, and why does he matter? Then in Genesis 9, Noah is mentioned with his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But verse 18 then adds, and Ham is the father of Canaan. Well, none of the other sons of, of, of his of Noah's children are mentioned, and so we say, hmm, I wonder why Canaan matters. The text is introducing us to a person that matters. And then, of course, as we continue through the text, we learn why. And the same is true of Genesis 11. We read of Terah's children, Abraham and Nahor and Haran, and then we see that the text tells us Abram's wife's name was Sarai, and then Nahor had a son whose name was Lot. And we continue in the narrative and we find out why. And that's what we're going to be doing this week. 
as we continue in the narrative, we'll, we'll find out why it was that the text has zoomed in on Abram. So we begin reading in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and the Bible tells us this. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So we mentioned already, the text seems to imply that Terah and his family originally meant to go to Canaan, but only made it as far as Haran. And there are several ways that this may have played out. Genesis 11, verse 31 says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son. Excuse me, I said the son of Nahor. Lot, Lot was not the son of Nahor. He was the son of Haran. My, my apologies. And Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came unto Haran and dwelt there. So uh, several possible reasons why they stopped, though they were intending to go to Canaan, why they stopped in Haran in Syria. Um, it seems unlikely to me that the family wanted to go to Canaan specifically for the potential as a settlement. It seems far more likely that Abram initially heard the call of the Lord to go to Canaan when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. And the reason why I think that, again, this is not in the Bible, this is my thoughts, but the reason why I think that is because, well, when Abraham does eventually get to Canaan, he ends up being a stranger and a foreigner in that land for the remainder of his life. He does not go there and get to settle and build houses and, and, and completely settle into the land. He lives in tents for the remainder of his days. His son lives in tents for the remainder of his son's days. His grandson lives in tents for the remainder of his grandson's days because they never actually were welcomed, were settled in the land. Everywhere that they went in the land, they finally were able to find a place where they could dig a well and that well wouldn't be stopped up by the people of the land and they'd be booted out. But they never were actually able to settle in the land. And, and so the fact that, that this land was, was not necessarily settleable in that way, obviously they didn't already have family in the land that they were migrating toward. They didn't have a connection there that they could just connect themselves to. And it does not seem as though the people of the land were particularly welcoming. They didn't necessarily send to Ur the Chaldees to recruit more people to come their way. And so it seems unlikely that, that their desire to go to Canaan was specifically rooted in um, the fact that Canaan was a, a, a very interesting place to be or a good place to be or they already had family there. And this leads me to believe that perhaps it was that God actually called Abram while he was still in Ur of the Chaldees and said, go to Canaan. Terah and his family uh, being receptive to Abram's call begin moving that direction, but then they end up stopping uh, along the way. And this would not necessarily be surprising that Haran would be a place where they would stop. Throughout most of history, and I mentioned this last week, before the advent of modern transportation, the safest route to get from the uh, to the Mediterranean from Chaldea was to follow the Euphrates River north to Haran and then work your way down the other side following what, what is called the Fertile Crescent. That area that you see there in green is green because that's where there are rivers that flow and because there are rivers that flow or it's 
it's, it's by bodies of water, uh, there's a general fertility, right? So there, are, there, are, there will be trees. Those trees will bear fruit. Uh, there will be animals down by the water because that's where the water is. They will have water to be able to water their own animals. Uh, they will be able to have meat and drink and, and it will be a little cooler by the water and all of these different advantages as they were traveling with children and with their entire households to, to get from point A to point B. This would ensure that both man and beast would be ready, uh, have ready access to food, have ready access to water along the route. It would be difficult, if not impossible, to cross the Arabian Desert. As a matter of fact, even in the days of, of the, 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 the days of Babylon and the days of the prophets, when they're prophesying of Babylon coming, they say that an enemy will come from the north. Well, technically, Babylon was in the east. But when that enemy was going to attack, they would certainly be attacking from the north because you don't attack from the east. The east is desert. You're not going to bring an army through there. Even thousands of, a thousand years later, you're not bringing an army through that desert. You're taking an army up the rivers and then down through Syria. So um, th- this is that idea here. So it makes perfect sense that on their way to Canaan, Terah and his family would go north along the Euphrates River before turning south. Then when the family came to Haran, perhaps they found a place of comfort. Now one of Terah's sons' names is Haran, right? And so we, we, might, we might presume that, that, that there's a link there, but maybe they found a place of comfort and they said, we have a place here, we have a home here, we're going to build our houses here. Or maybe it was that that's when Terah got sick. We know that he got sick and died in Haran. And it's possible that he got sick and they had to stop and slow down because of him getting sick. And then when he died, they, the rest of the family said, well, we've been here, we've settled here. I think we're just going to stay here. But whatever the reason, the family settled. They stopped their efforts of moving to Canaan. And this brings us back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. While in Haran, the Lord speaks to Abraham, perhaps speaks to him again. And he tells him to leave that country to leave his family, to leave the house of his father who had settled there in Haran and to go into the land that God would show him. And this was no small thing. We're familiar enough with ancient culture to understand just how important family was. Nowadays, if uh, I say I'm going to go and I'm going to travel away from my blood relatives, um, we don't necessarily bat an eye. As a matter of fact, I live up here in Minnesota. Um, my, my parents live in Colorado. My wife's parents live in Georgia. Um, we are quite a ways away from family, and that comes with some natural disadvantages as it relates to having babysitters and the like. However, that being said, we can get on the phone. We can video call. We can hop on a plane and be to either place in a couple of hours. We can drive there in, in, in a day to either place if we'd like to. Modern transportation, roads, technology has really bridged that gap. If, if, if we were in a financial strait and we needed finances and, and my parents or Sarah's parents wanted to help us out, they could do so like that. Right? They could hear that somebody is sick and in the hospital in a matter of minutes, and then they could be here in a matter of hours to help out or whatever the case may be. Right? So, so there, there is so much more capacity today for us to be able to travel far away from family without uh, a dramatic problems as it would relate to the things that normally family would provide for us. But of course, that was not the case in Abram's day. Family was everything in that day. It was the, the person's career, right? You did what your father did. When your father got old, he took everything he had and he gave it to his sons and his sons continued doing that thing. It was family. I mean, it was, it was career. It was society. It was culture. It was protection, 
right? If you have roving bands of bandits, you have the protection of your family. And of course, it was your future. For Abram to leave his father's house was to set aside everything. It was to set aside his safety nets, his economic prospects, even his earthly obligations to family. And to this end, what Abram did here was no little matter. Even today, at least in a biblical or a functional family, the prospect of living far away from family comes with some sacrifices with which those who remain relatively close to one another do not need to make. Far more so in those times where you could not just jump on a plane or wire some money or send a letter or whatever it might be. This was a severing of great consequence for Abram. But the operative point that, we, that we, we see here in the text is not necessarily that he left, but why it is that he did this thing. And we read about that in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2 and verse 3, I'm one slide ahead. Oh, no, there, what am I doing? There we go. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, the Bible says this. I will make of thee a great nation, God speaking to Abram, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God told Abram that he would make of Abram a great nation and a great name, that God would bless him, but also that Abram would be a blessing. And in this we find a parallel construction here between verses 2 and three, the promise of verse two, that God would bless Abram and make his name great is elaborated upon in verse three, that God would bless those that bless him and curse those that curse him. So he says, I will bless thee. I will make thy name great. And then in verse three, he says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. So that a part of God's blessing upon Abram would be divine protection, right? Indicative of one who was a representative of God himself. Now, in Genesis chapter 20, when we get there, we're going to find that God calls Abram a prophet. And this is what the text is indicating here, that Abram is being sent out by God as a representative of God, as one who is a prophet of God. And as a representative of God in this manner, to bless and honor the prophet would be to bless and honor God. To curse the prophet would be to curse the Lord. So that while Abraham left his earthly connections, he did so in the confidence of the Lord's protection, of the Lord's provision, of the Lord's direction. If I may say it this way, what Abram was being asked to yield on this earth through family, he could have confidence if he had faith that God would make up the difference for him while he was in the place that God had called him to go. So Abram believed this promise. And when Abram believed, and we know Abram believed this promise, we'll talk a lot more about this next week, because he went. And when he went, we call that faith. Now, there was a second promise made here as well through a second textual parallel that we find in verses 2 and 3. Uh, the second half of verse 2, God says, And thou shalt be a blessing, that he would be a blessing to others. And then this is elaborated on in the second half of verse 3, And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Saying that in Abram, 
all of the families of the earth would find or would receive for themselves a blessing. Now, uh, take this language in the context with which, we, with which we have found it. Recall back in Genesis chapter 10, this word family really mattered, right? When we talked about the families of the earth, this harkens back to the nations, the table of nations that we studied in chapter 10 where we read of the families of the earth spreading out and forming the nations of the world. So when God says, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, yes, many of these families had perhaps not actually formulated themselves just yet into nations, but this is what they are doing, right? That is what Genesis 10 told us, is that these families spread out throughout the earth and they all became nations, individual nations. Every family is descended from Shem, Ham or Japheth, and the nations that arose out of those came from direct family groups. And God says that through Abram, all the family groups of the earth, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And it is in this that we actually find the first definitive statement of Abram as the next in the line, uh, in the seed, in the line of God's fulfillment of that promise that he made to Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And remember, that is one of the great themes, one of, not the only, but one of the great themes that we are tracing in Genesis is the seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent. And we trace this through uh, many individuals, right? We have genealogies that trace uh, uh, many individuals. But if we look at the highlights, if we look at the people that God was really working through, we'd say Seth, we'd say Enoch, we'd say Noah, and we would then say Shem and Abram, right? Those are kind of the checkpoints along the way. And this language gives us the understanding of the next checkpoint. And not only the next checkpoint, but the next level of revelation as well. See, because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says that he would undo through the seed of the woman what was done in Adam. And now we find that this will apply to the whole world in that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the seed of the woman that would come through Abram. So that this man, 10 generations after the flood, would be that next great checkpoint in the working out of God's great promise. And lest we miss exactly what God means when he says that Abram would be a man through whom all the world would be blessed, we can certainly connect this to the New Testament to see how these promises came to fruition. We see Peter make a connection distinctly in Acts chapter 3 along this regard. He says, beginning in verse 22 of Acts 3, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abram, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. So Peter connects first Moses' prophecy of a prophet that would come that would be like unto Moses. And the idea is one that would speak directly with God that would intercede between 
God and God's people. Going all the way back to the days uh, uh, where God was on Mount Sinai and he spoke the Ten Commandments to the people and the people were terrified and they hid themselves from the glory of the Lord and they went to Moses and they said, Moses, please never again allow God to speak to us face to face lest we die. Let's do this. Moses, you speak to God and then you tell us what God said and we are going to trust you. We, we don't need to hear his voice. We are going to trust that if you tell us God said it so that we don't have to hear his voice again because we're going to die if we do, you just tell us what God says and we will believe you. And God would later say that through Moses that, that he would raise up a prophet like unto Moses, meaning another prophet who would come and say, I have spoken unto the Father, believe what I say. And if you believe what I say, what I say is coming from the Father in the same way that Moses did. So he begins with that promise. And then he says that from the, the prophets, from Samuel uh, and beyond, had foretold of this one who would come, but that it all goes back to a promise that was made to Abram that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now, the exact promise is actually not the promise here in Genesis 12, because in Genesis 12, God says, through thee, Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It will not be until Genesis 22, verse 18, that God says, through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But it is indeed the same idea. The connection here is that through the seed of Abram, there would come a man. And that man is, as we know from Acts 3, as Peter connects those dots, Paul will connect those dots in Galatians 3 as well, that man is Jesus Christ. He would die on the cross, and he would die on the cross to bear our sins, to pay for our sins. And the Father would take your sins and my sins, and he would pour out his wrath upon Jesus for those sins. And Jesus would die. And then he would be buried. And then three days later, he would raise from the dead. And in doing so, not only would he pay for the sins of every man, woman, and child, but in raising from the dead, he would secure eternal life for them, both Jew and Gentile, not just for the Jews, not just for, for the, the, the bloodline of Abram and Isaac and Jacob, but for all who would exercise faith in his name. And all who place their faith in Christ would receive the same reward that Abram received, namely the reward of justification. We'll study that in Genesis 15 quite a bit more. And to this end, and I'm perhaps getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I do want to set the stage for what we'll continue to talk about in Genesis 15 today. I want you to get your minds thinking about this idea already and connecting what God is doing, even in Genesis 12, to the nature of the gospel. That he says, in these shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What we are looking at is we are looking at a promise of the man who would bring about the, the promises of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And then in Genesis 15... That's going to be connected to the method by which this salvation is secured, namely, by faith. So in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, beginning in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, 
or by the hearing of faith. Even as Abram, Abraham, excuse me, believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So Paul speaks in the book of Galatians about the supremacy of the spirit to that of the law, calling his readers not to be drawn back into a works-based manner of thinking after having stepped into a faith-based relationship with God in Christ. And of course, we've talked about the relationship between the Christian and the law before. We recognize that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, that the law is not evil, the law is not wrong, the law is not wicked, the law is not a bad thing, but the law was ordinances, and those ordinances were It is impossible to keep them. So Jesus came. He did not abolish the law, but he fulfilled the law. That in Christ, the law was fulfilled. And that when I accept Christ as my savior, I am placed into Christ and so have judicially fulfilled the law and thus been made, been declared righteous through Jesus Christ. But Paul is careful to say the law is holy and just and good. The problem with the law was not the law itself. The problem with the law was that I, because I'm sinful, was incapable of keeping it. And so I I do not have to keep the law to have favor with God. I have favor with God through Jesus Christ. And then I follow what, what, what is the law of Christ. I follow Christ in his teachings and his commandments, many of which, of course, we know are reflected, uh, reflective of the Old Testament law. But we see this idea here that he's speaking about this difference, and that's what all of Galatians is about. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6, where the Bible says that Abram was justified by faith, not by works. And then he says that all who follow the pattern, the the pattern of this justification of this faith, are justified like Abram was, and thus are the children of Abram, the spiritual children of Abram. Now, again, we're not in Genesis 15 yet, and we'll have much more to say about that when we get there. But Paul then goes on to say that this is what God was promising to Abram on the day that he left Haran. When he said to Abram, I will in in thee all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul says that was God preaching the gospel to Abram. That he was telling Abram that there was coming a day where there would be one who would, be, who, who, who would bless the entire world, connecting it to the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. And Paul goes on to say that the manner in which all the nations of the earth would be blessed would be that they would follow the teachings of this posterity, of this Jesus Christ, into a manner of living founded not upon sight, not upon works, not upon self-righteousness, not upon effort, but rather upon imputed righteousness through faith. Abram's obedience on this day thus forms one of those first shadows of a template that every person who accepts Christ follows whereby they hear God make promises. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. They hear God say that if the Son of God will make you free, you shall be free indeed. They hear him say that you can be forgiven of your sins, that you can have eternal life. And when they hear those promises of God, there is a contingency of people who hearing those promises believe God. 
and they invest their heart fully in the reality of what God has just said, and in doing so, it is counted unto them for righteousness. And that's the gospel. Abram's obedience on this day being the next faithful step of the life of a man who walked by faith and not by sight. So we continue, verses 4 through 9. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, unto the plain of Morah. And, in, and the Canaanites, excuse me, the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on, e, uh, on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed, going still toward the south. So Abram obeyed God's word, the Bible says, and on the basis of God's promise, he takes his wife and he takes his nephew, and the, who is the son of his dead brother. Uh, and we may presume that, that Abram took responsibility for him, we would assume. And they depart Haran when Abram is 75 years old. And the Bible says they pla- passed through a p- place called Sychem. That would be Shechem. It was the early name for Shechem. It would not be called Shechem until the days of Abram's grandson, Jacob. And they rested, the Bible says, in the plains of Morah. And there, the Bible says, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said that the land would be given to his seed. And there, Abram built an altar to worship the Lord. Now, notice he says in verse 7, unto thy seed will I give this land. Now, he has said that he would give the land to Abram and to to his seed. But as we continue through the text, we are going to find that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob will remain, as it were, strangers in the land. And they will not truly have the land in their possession until the days after the Exodus, when the, the children of Israel, the second generation after the children of Israel, enter into the land of Canaan in the days of Joshua. And to this end, we recognize that Abram builds an altar there to worship the Lord, indicating that this was a place where he intended to settle because he built an altar, and yet he does not settle. Maybe for a couple of reasons. Perhaps because there's a famine in the land, and we know that this is the case from the the verses that follow. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Maybe because of that famine in the land, Abram is not able to settle there and he he has to keep moving. Or perhaps it's because the land is already settled and the people are very territorial. We don't necessarily see this yet, but we'll see in the in the latter days, especially of Isaac and uh, uh, well, especially of Isaac. Uh, we're going to see that there's several times where he attempts to build a well and to settle in a place, and then it does not work, and then he has to move on until he finally is able to find a, a little uh, a little piece of land uh, that is not contended over by the Canaanites. But either way, they continue and they move on past Shechem and they go to a mountain that is between Bethel and Hai. This would be the same place that would eventually be called 
Ai on the east. So Bethel's on the west and Ai's on the east. And in between them, there's a mountain. And that is where he again builds an altar, presumably hoping to settle there. But once again, this does not happen. And the Bible says in verse 9 that Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. And that journey toward the south is something that we're going to be considering um, uh, in, in a couple of weeks. We, we will not consider that for this week. But as we wrap things up today of a sort, I've given you much information. And of course, Paul warns, as, as I've mentioned somewhat regularly in these information-heavy sermons in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And so it is insufficient for me simply to pump a bunch of information into you as if we're in some sort of seminary class and then to leave you to absorb knowledge and say there'll be a, a quiz on it next time we're together. That's, that's not what we're doing here, right? Uh, we, we, we want that information. It's important to receive the information because in that information, we're able to rightly relate ourselves to the word of God properly as it relates to interpreting the word of God properly. But we also want to make sure that what we can do is take our knowledge and translate it into that thing that, that is called in the Word of God, wisdom. We want to move forward not just in knowledge, but in wisdom, in our understanding, or in those things which make for godliness among us. And the natural lesson that we learned this week, of course, is a lesson on faith. Because Abram's actions here are, in fact, used in the New Testament directly to teach a lesson on faith. But I can't do that application justice in the time that I have. I've got 15 minutes or so left. And so I'm not even going to try today. That's why I'm preaching another sermon on faith next week. Next week will be an application sermon of sorts where we're going to found ourselves in faith, ground ourselves in faith, and then build up from that grounding and understand what Hebrews 11 particularly has to tell us about the relationship of the events that we read here in Genesis 12 this week and of faith as Hebrews 11 speaks to it. So that'll be my sermon next week. But for this week, there's a foundational thought that I want to leave with you. Last time we were together... We talked about faith more generally through the faithful line and called you to think through that idea from Hebrews chapter 12 that we have this great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us who looked for that city whose builder and maker was God. Therefore, we lay aside the sin and the, uh, the weights and the sin that does so easily beset us and we run with patience the race that is set before us. A very, very generalized concept of faith, right? And then next week, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of faith. This week, I want to leave you with something like the in-between. Faith is, by its nature, belief in something unseen. If I have seen something, then I don't need to believe something by faith. I, I believe it by sight. We think of Thomas, right? When Thomas says, I will not believe unless I see the nail scars in his hand and I can put my hand into Jesus' side. And Jesus appears and he tells Thomas, look at the nail scars, put your hand in my side, be not faithless, but believing. And he did that thing for Thomas, but then what did he tell Thomas? You believe because you have seen, blessed are they whom, having not seen, yet believe. And so we understand that this is what faith is. It is by nature belief in something that is unseen. So that Paul juxtaposes faith and sight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, when he says of the apostles, we walk by faith, not 
by sight. But what I'd like for us to think about this week as we prepare to really dig into faith next week, faith on on the believing end next week, I'd like us to think about the one in whom Abram put his faith. Let's remember God as we have learned about him throughout our study. And I know our study is, this is sermon 53 or I think it's 54. So I know our study has been going for a while in Genesis. But let's think about the God that we have learned about. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 presented a God who is omnipotent. That means all-powerful, unlimited in capability. A God who is omniscient, meaning he knows all, unlimited in knowledge. A God who is omnipresent, meaning everywhere. A God who is unlimited in locality. And we gleaned this from the fact that God is the one who created time, space, and matter. So in that he, is, uh, he has created time, that means he's outside of time, which means he's at the beginning and the end at the same time because he's not bound by time. And in that he created space, he is not bound by space, and so that he is everywhere at once because space is something that he is outside of. We can only be in one space at one time because we are bound by space, but God is outside of space, therefore he is everywhere. It doesn't mean he is in everything, right? God is not in the chair and in the pulpit and in us in in that sort of way. God is not everything, right? God is not the flowers and and, and, and the honeybees and everything. That's That's not it. It is that God is everywhere because he is outside of space. And then, of course, God did not just create time, making him... Uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, now I'm getting myself confused. Making him, time would be all-knowing, right? And he's not, he's uh, making him omniscient. He's not just outside of space, making him omnipresent, but he is also outside of matter, making him omnipotent, all-powerful. There is nothing within the scope of the created order that is outside of God's control because God is not bound by his creation. He is outside of his creation. So he's not bound by these things. Therefore, as we look at God, he is able to do anything he wants within the scope of matter because he is not bound by that matter because he created that matter and he's outside of that matter. So that is the God that we serve. God created the world and showed himself to be a God of creativity, did he not? A God of beauty. We look around us today and we see a God. We see the marks. We see the fingerprints of a God of creativity. We see the fingerprints of a God of beauty. We see the fingerprints of a God of order. He has made things orderly. There's a way that things happen in the world. That's why we can do the things that we do today as we've harnessed physics, because there is this idea that that there are constants, that there are things that we can expect to happen. If gravitation wasn't a constant, if if, if the the, the pull of, of gravity was constantly shifting, there's a lot of things we could not do, but because it's a constant, we can assume upon some things, and thus we can build airplanes and such um, that, that can harness the powers of physics in order to lift them off the ground. So God is a God of order. And then God created humanity. And we learned a lot more about God from creating humanity. From everything before man, we learned about, yes, his creativity and his orderliness and all of those things. And then he created man, and we learned more things about him. We learned that God was not just omnipotent and omniscient and and omnipresent and creative and, 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 and a God of beauty and a God of order, but we learned that he's a relational God. That he created man in his image and after his likeness specifically so that he could have a personal relationship with 
a part of his creation. God is relational. God wants relationships. And so we see Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And then man rebelled against his maker. And we learned more about God. We learned first that God is merciful. Levying consequences of sin, he is just. But also, that in his justice, he also clothed man with the skin of an animal. Killing an animal that man might be clothed. Shedding the blood of one to cover the shame of another. God is just, yes, but God is also merciful. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain kills his brother Abel. And God again shows this incredible balance of justice and mercy, whereby he rebukes Cain, he curses Cain. But what else does he do? He places a mark upon Cain in his mercy so that no man would come and destroy Cain himself. We then trace humanity through a time of evil and through a time of violence, where the cup of God's wrath against rebellion against him has filled to the overflowing, thus God must destroy the world. Only then to read those words, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Consider a God whose creation scorns him, rejects him, and blasphemes him. A God whose justice cannot simply overlook such sin or ignore such sin, but whose heart so deeply yearns for his creation, and he is so unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that he makes a way for man to be spared even through that judgment. So God judged the world in his holiness, reminding us that he is indeed a holy and a just God. But he made that way for Noah and his family to be saved through the ark. That any who would receive, by faith, the reality of that ark would not perish in that judgment. Bearing in himself the weight of man's own rebellion, if by any chance some might be willing to trust in his salvation, get into that boat and save his soul. So the testimony of God in Genesis 1 through 11 paints a picture of a loving creator. One who is patient. One who is kind. One who wants a relationship with his creation. But who is also just and righteous and holy. And the question for which I appeal to you on this morning as we close, as we prepare to think through what faith looks like next week, is this. Has God not shown himself worthy of our faith? Has God not earned the right to your trust? We put our trust in all sorts of things. Money, government, Institutions, technologies, under, uh, in our understanding, in our senses, in the idea of, of uniformity of nature and such. But has God not actually shown himself far more reliable to us than those things? We have seen over the course of the last decade 
how institutions that we may have presumed at one time were trustworthy are not at all trustworthy. Maybe at one time they were, they are not anymore. You have seen how those people that you have loved and maybe put your trust in, in your life, have changed. Maybe at one time they were trustworthy, maybe they are not anymore. You have seen, we have all seen, how easy it is for for the things of this world to be here one moment and gone the next. Whether that be money, or whether that be relationships, or whether that be our health. But then we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Lean not into your own understanding. Is God not more trustworthy, Christian, than our own understanding? And we read in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Is God not more reliable than the inventions and the institutions of men? Has our God not shown himself from generation to generation more faithful, more understanding, more powerful? Has God not proven the words of Isaiah 40 over and over again when Isaiah proclaimed in verses 25 through 31, to whom then will ye liken me or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things. That bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by, uh, by, excuse me, all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. And this is the God we serve. Is that God not worthy of our faith? God, you're not doing it in the timetable that I understand. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He shall direct thy path. God, I don't understand what's happened with this relationship. I don't understand what you're doing financially. I don't understand what you're doing with my health. That's okay. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Next week, we'll talk about faith and we'll see the example of faith laid out by Abram as he's exhorted of the Lord. But Abram's faith did not just suddenly appear, Christian. It was not just missing one second and then the next second he hears this voice and says, well, I'm going to trust that voice. Abram's faith was built in Abram's heart through the evident and consistent testimony of a faithful God that he identified and he said, this God is worthy of my trust. So too in our hearts. The things that we're called to do, they don't exist in a vacuum, Christian. It is not as if an unknown entity is calling us to commit ourselves to him apart from any evidence either of his existence or his power in Godhead. The record is clear. There is a God in the heavens. We know it to be true. 
He is just and he is holy and he is righteous, but he is also merciful and gracious and long-suffering and he loves you. And he seeks unto you. And by the testimony of his own lips, the only thing that stands between us and him is when we step into faithlessness. And so the question is, as we step into our study of faith next week, is God not worthy of you exercising that faith in him? May we answer that question in our own hearts today so that when God compels us to step out in faith, to trust him in the days where we don't have anything or anyone else to trust in, or maybe, as we sang this morning, I'd rather have Jesus. Maybe you are at a crossroads where you do have the possibility to trust in chariots and horses, in money, in institutions, in things. And God says, no, go this way. And you say, but that way is security. And God says, is that really more security than me? And you're being asked to make a decision. You're being asked to wait for a decision. Wherever you find yourself today, when God compels us to step out in in faith, if we are rightly related to this concept, that God is worthy to be trusted, the question then will not be why. The question will be what Isaiah said. Lord, how long? Lord, where? Here am I, send me. Lord, what would you have me to do? And so the question I ask as we close this morning is, is that you? Are you in the place? God has shown himself to us. He has revealed himself. He's told us what he wants of us. He's told us his desire for a relationship with us. Are you in that place that when God comes calling and asks for you to step out in faith, and maybe that's today for you. Maybe today you're at that crossroads. Maybe today you're being asked that thing. I would wager that for many of us it is. Are you in that place? Here am I. Send me. Lord, where? Lord, how long? And all of that started in Isaiah's life. That's in Isaiah 6. With him seeing the Lord high and lifted up. And him hearing the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. May we see the same thing today. May we see the God that we serve. He has not hid himself from us. And may we, through seeing the God that we serve, understand and be fully invested in the reality that that God is worth our faith. So that next week, when we are compelled unto that faith, we're already in the place where we're ready to say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I ask that God's people would be positioned this morning to see you as you are. Father, we acknowledge that when we see you for who you are, that we cannot but acknowledge that you are worthy of our faith, that you are entirely trustworthy above our own understanding, that you are entirely trustworthy above chariots and horses, above institutions and men, above money and above power, and that you are worthy of our faith above our own strength, so that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And I ask for God's people today, no doubt many of whom are at crossroads of faith,
maybe they're tired. Maybe they've been at it for a while. They don't understand what you're doing. They're confused. They're discouraged. And I ask that you would strengthen their heart this morning. That we would be reminded and reinvigorated in the reality that you are a God who is utterly reliable and absolutely worth our faith. And may this set the stage in our hearts for us to receive the truths of next week with gladness. And I commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.